Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be involved in this initiative, which I think was largely to do with Luke, to draw attention to what's happening in <coughs> philosophy at the LSE. Uh, and that, as I've already said, is my title. Um, when uh, my wife, who's in the audience tonight, uh, and is a consultative physician, told me back in the what, late 1980s that there was a relatively new movement called evidence-based medicine, um, I did what I think any rational person would do, then we almost fall off the chair and say, my God, what was it based on before? <laughs> um, and obviously, I believe in evidence-based everything. Uh, what else are we going to base medicine on? Myth? Delphic Oracle? I don't know. I go with this man, uh, David Hume. Maybe we should have the lights down a little so that... Can I, so that uh, philosopher, historian, as you can tell by his girth, Bon uh, who said, I don't actually, I'm not such a fan of humour as many people are, but uh, I think he gave us a lousy version of the problem of induction because he didn't know any science, but this is certainly very true. The wise man proportions his beliefs to the evidence, and of course he applied this particularly uh, to, uh, to claims about religion, which he rightly, in my view, exposed as being entirely baseless as far as evidence goes. So obviously, uh, so, uh, medicine should be based on evidence. So why was there a need for an evidence-based movement, evidence-based medicine movement uh, in, uh, in the 1980s and continuing today? Well, the fear was, of course, that... I mean, let's start with this long quote from uh, a famous textbook in uh, History of Science, which describes uh, treatment by, obviously, the best king, best physicians in the realm of, of Charles II. The, the king, Charles II, was bled to the extent of a pint from his right arm. Next, his doctor drew eight ounces of blood from his left shoulder, gave him an emetic to make the king vomit, two physics and an enema containing antinomy, rock salt, marshmallow leaves, violets, beetroot, chamomile flowers, fennel seed, linseed, cardamom seed, saffron, cochineal and aloe. Sounds quite tasty, but I'm not sure about the uh, method of delivery if you're looking for taste. Uh, the king's head was then shaved and a blister raised on his scalp. A sneezing powder of hellebore root was given to purge his brain and a powder of cowslip administered to strengthen the brain for it was taken as known in those days that the nasal secretion came from the brain. Not surprisingly, this passage ends, the king died. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously the fear, and there's a similar story, I mean bloodletting is always the example of course because it's so dramatic, but the similar story of the death of George Washington who had a, a swollen epiglottis, making it difficult for him to swallow and to breathe as a result of a viral infection, was bled to the extent of uh, uh, half the amount of blood, so more than two and a half litres of blood, I believe there were five litres of blood in, in the body uh, over a period of about four or five hours. And instead of recovering, which he undoubtedly would have done, he'd been left to himself, he, he, he died. And again, obviously, as father of his country, was attended by the best physicians that there could possibly uh, have been at the time. Uh, Bloodletters thought that they had evidence that their therapy was effective. After all, some people survived, some people got better, and it was always possible to attribute their getting better to their being, uh, having their blood let. And if they didn't get better, well, people die anyway, and they might have died sooner, and they might have died in more pain if they hadn't been, uh, had massive amounts of blood drained from them. Uh, but what we, what we want to say is that they, although they thought they had evidence for the efficacy of their treatments back in the old days, and in particular respect to bloodletting, they didn't really. 
that what they were make, what they, what they were doing in arguing in the way I just suggested was making a whole series of what philosophers like to call post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy because they like to give fancy names to very simple ideas. Uh, post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy is the fallacy of failing to distinguish between an accidental connection and a causal connection. So they were saying, well, people have got better, and they were given, they had their blood let, and they got better, and they inferred that they got better because the blood was. Let, let me give you my favourite example of this. The single case and statistical post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy is my favourite example of a single case. It's the story, perhaps some of you already heard, of a young journalist who hears that out in the Mount, in some mountainous village in Peru, there's a guy who's lived to 135 years old, and she determines to go out and interview this amazing person. And she finds, she goes and she checks in the local records, and indeed, it does seem that he's 135 years old, and she finally tracks him down. And after some long discussion, she asks him the boring old question, to what does he attribute his longevity? And he said, no sex, no alcohol, uh, and no smoking. Uh, but all the time that she's conducting this uh, interview, she's been distracted by tinklings of glasses and, and womanly laughter and clouds of smoke coming in, coming in the, under the door into the other room in the shack in Peru where this chap lived. And eventually she gets up the courage to ask, What's going on? What's going on next door? I said, Oh, don't worry. That's just my dad having fun with, and drinking with the girls of the village. <laughs> so, okay. So good that you laughed. So you get the point. The point is, okay, he didn't smoke, he didn't drink, and he didn't have sex. But that's not why he became uh, so old. Sounds like in this case there was some sort of genetic element. Uh, there are all sorts of cases of post-op proctor fallacies, of course, statistically. So the problem that where you where you fail to distinguish, or unless you're careful you can fail to distinguish accidental probabilistic connections from genuinely causal connections. So the probability that you'll die uh, tomorrow if you're admitted to hospital today is considerably higher than the probability that you'll die tomorrow if you're not uh, admitted to hospital today. Now, of course, we've got to lay aside things like superposts and so on, but we take it that that's not actually a causal connection. There's an underlying explanation for both your being admitted to hospital and today and you're dying tomorrow, namely the oriel. And so we wouldn't take it just from the fact that the probabilities are connected in that way, that there's a genuine causal connection. It seems that what was happening in the history of medicine was that people were failing to avoid the post-hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. Uh, their physics and procedures were placebos at best, and as we can see from the bloodletting case, uh, not very often at best. And uh, he, he, although it, it's true that... Uh, Many doctors were aware that at least part of their armamentarium was, was placebos and that we ought to not uh, desist from using placebos if they help at all. I love this quote from a medieval French surgeon, Henri de Bonville, who says, Keep up your patient's spirits by music of vials and ten-string psaltery, or by forged letters describing the death of his enemies, <laughs> <laughs> or by telling him that he's been elected to a bishopric of a churchman. Uh, and no doubt this indeed, did indeed make people feel better, and sometimes making them feel better makes them better. Uh, similarly, Thomas Jefferson in his diary of 1807 wrote that one of the most successful physicians he'd ever known told him that he uh, used more bread pills, drops of coloured water, and powders of hickory ash than, than all other medicines 
uh, put together. So people were aware, but of course they, they weren't aware. There were some what we would now think of as unintentional placebos or worse, in that things that people thought were effective but weren't. And of course what drove the evidence-based medicine movement quite explicitly, for example, Cochrane says this explicitly, is the terrible thought that maybe this wasn't just a historical phenomenon, maybe bloodletting wasn't the exception or the historical case and not the present case, but, but maybe that's the rule. Maybe a lot of, at least, of the procedures that medicine swore by, even in the 20th century, late 20th century, were uh, placebos or worse, just as their historical antecedents had been. And that was by no means an idle <coughs> worry at all. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not like Hume worrying about whether the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Um, the, example, quite recently then, in the late 1980s was when evidence-based medicine started, uh, not just the pills that you know, might turn out to be placebos, but actual uh, quite major surgical procedures. So there's a procedure called internal mammary artery ligations, a treatment for angina that was used quite widely in the 1950s. Uh, it basically consisted of opening up uh, of, uh, uh, of the chest. Angina, as you know, is caused by furring of the arteries. And the, the theory then accepted was that if you actually ligated the furred up arteries, although that sounds like the wrong thing to do since you want blood to get through, uh, that new channels would sprout within the heart muscle and uh, people would be better off. And thousands upon thousands of patients reported that they were better off in respect of their pain from angina as a result of, of uh, mammary artery ligation. Now what people started to notice, it, it wasn't at all because of the non-effectiveness of the treatment in terms of the people reporting that they had less angina pain, but because when people did autopsies they didn't find any of these newly sprouting channels of, of people who'd been given this treatment. Uh, so people did a, a randomised controlled trial, which I'm going to be talking about a lot. Uh, uh, amazingly, getting away with things I don't think you get away with in any ethics committee now, namely involving a sham surgery where the chest was actually opened uh, and the arteries, the third up arteries exposed, but then no ligation was actually uh, uh, undertaken. And people got better in roughly the same proportion in the two, in the two groups, in the sham surgery or placebo group and the uh, actual mammary artery ligation in terms of the relief from their angina pain. So this was quite a recent um, example that was motivating this concern. And there were, lo there were lots of others as well, though not that many. I'll be sort of putting the other side of the case shortly as we go along. Okay, so the idea was that uh, evidence-based medicine was to set out to subject medical interventions to the test of real evidence of efficacy, rather than in, in particular than being taken in by anecdotal evidence or reports of, of uh, clinical experience and so on in the way that we all already said that people who left blood thought that, um, that their experience told them that this was an effective treatment. But then the big issue is what is real treat? What is real evidence? Uh, what's really scientifically telling evidence as opposed to not really scientifically telling evidence? And that's what we're going to be talking about uh, for at least the first part of this talk. So David uh, Sackett, who was one of the leaders of the EBM movement, said that EBM is a new paradigm. It always seems to be these days. Kuhn has got a lot to answer for. Uh, it's a new paradigm that de-emphasizes intuition, unsystematic clinical expertise, and pathophysiologic rationale, as sufficient grounds for clinical decision-making, and stresses the examination of evidence from clinical research, where it's plain from the context that the evidence 
clinical research he was talking about was very, very largely, at least, uh, evidence of randomized controlled trials. Well, I'm sure most people know what a randomized controlled trial is, but just to make sure, a randomized controlled trial is where you take a bunch of people who are going to be the subjects of the, of the uh, research, not in any sense a random sample of any population. They're assembled by a mixture of deliberate choice and deliberate exclusion and serendipity, which, doc which patient happens to walk through which uh, doctor's uh, door, clinic door, at the time that they're undertaking this research. Uh, but then, having been assembled in this haphazard way, they're divided by some random procedure into a, uh, into a group that are going to get the intervention that you're testing and a group that gets something else, usually in uh, a placebo. And, well, we'll talk about it as we go along. Certainly the initial um, impression that pretty well everybody who read the uh, Sackett and other articles got was that the, the, what ABM was saying was there's a very strong claim that only evidence from RCTs really counts as valid uh, scientific evidence for reasons we'll talk about so and, and this is very widely still although it's, as we'll see it's de denied by the uh, uh, by the evidence-based people then, you know, I never said it sort of thing started very quickly, but it, it, it certainly had an effect on the medical profession to the extent that if you did a word association test pretty well anywhere in Western medicine now and you fed them the word EBM, then what they would say is randomized controlled trial. And if you fed them randomized controlled trial, what they'll say is gold standard of evidence. If I had a pound for every time I've read the term gold standard applied to evidence only from randomized controlled trial in the medical literature, then I'd be fairly rich. Uh, Ideally, the randomized controlled trial has got to be done double-blind, meaning that neither the clinician uh, nor the patient knows which of the two groups, the treatment group or the placebo group, they've been assigned to. Uh, there's a whole interesting thing about how many, pointed out very early by Feinstein, that he, he reckons something like 70% of randomized controlled trials fail to maintain blind, actually. Uh, but that's another lecture that we can do another time. But that's the idea. In theory, they're not supposed to know. Okay, so here, here's a nice quote I like from the British Medical Journal in 2001. Britain has given the world Shakespeare, Newtonian physics, the theory of evolution, parliamentary democracy, and it's a slightly jingoistic quote, also very over-generous in my view to what I insist on calling the Celtic fringe. These are all English contributions to the world. Good. Let's leave that aside as well. So what might it be? Well, obviously the context is medical, uh, so it could be discovery of penicillin or if we allow Lucky Jim to count as honorary English, given that he was in Cambridge at the time, the discovery of the uh, structure of DNA. But as you would guess from the context of this lecture, the answer is, of course, the randomized controlled trial. So it, it'd be hard pressed to say that, that, that uh, the randomized controlled trial doesn't get a good press these days in the medical press and that it's very firmly associated with, uh, with uh, evidence based medicine. Well, we'll see as we go along that the idea that only RCTs provide really telling evidence is not sustainable. Uh, and uh, right from the, more or less from the beginning, uh, Sackett and others were saying that this was always a, a misinterpretation of evidence-based medicine, that it was having this exclusively randomized controlled trial view of evidence, of real scientifically telling evidence. Well, maybe it's a misrepresentation, but you'll still find in what's the Bible of the 
uh, of the movement, even in the third edition, you'll still, uh, Saka et al. over the space mansion, you'll still find if the study was not randomized, so you're, you're told, if, you've got this view, which is a bit crazy, I think, of doctors making decisions by actually look on the ward, they're looking up on their computer the latest studies on whatever um, condition they think this, this particular patient has, and they, and they first of all feed in. Uh, randomized control trials are required. If they find something that isn't randomized, they say we'd suggest you stop reading it and go on to the next article in your search. So certainly there's still uh, a very strong emphasis on randomized control trials. So why is it not sustainable? Well, there were some pro-EBM cases in the sense of further uh, treatments that have become standard in medicine. The, one of the favorite cases that they all cite is grommets for glue ear, uh, where a, a treatment that had been accepted as definitely efficacious uh, turns out when you perform a randomized controlled trial on it not to be and is now being abandoned uh, but more measured voices immediately pointed out that this that it couldn't be that the, the, the idea that everything was like bloodletting in modern medicine couldn't surely be uh, be correct um, there are lots of contrary cases that in cases that we've never to this day uh, done a randomized controlled trial on and yet was must surely firmly count as it, it, as effective uh, because we've got other kinds of evidence so cases that are often talked thyroxine for myxedema insulin for diabetic ketoacidosis vitamin B12 for pernicious anema, anemia and you can, you can extend this list very extensively and similarly pretty well any surgical procedure for, for example appendectomy for acute appendicitis has never been subjected to a randomised controlled trial and I doubt that you would get uh, uh, ethical consent to doing one if you uh, randomized people with acute appendicitis to um, to sham surgery or whatever. Apparently they now are developing drugs that may be even more effective but that, that's not because we're not talking about the best treatment although it clearly was the best treatment for acute appendicitis for, for a long time but certainly there was, that's clearly there's very good evidence that that's an effective treatment and, but we've never had a randomized controlled trial on it. Okay, so then there was this sort of, depending on whether you're being generous or, or critical, either a retreat from this clear claim about evidence in evidence-based medicine that only a, a randomized controlled trial count, uh, or a clarification if you're being more generous. And now we're told quite firmly that, and this, that this was the view all along, and who cares about whether it was or, or wasn't, the, the question is what justification it has. The clinical expertise and pathophysiologic rationale, as they like to say, are to be incorporated into the overall evidential picture, not ignored, though there's precious little, I think, in the evidence-based medicine literature on how that's to be done. It's an interesting issue. Uh, but uh, 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 still, clinical trials are top of the pile, certainly, for, in any evidence-based medicine account. And the RC, within that pile, the RCT re retains a very special role. What standardly being advocated these days and has been now for several decades is an evidence hierarchy of which this is one which has meta-analysis or systematic reviews of randomized controlled trials at the top but then randomized controlled trials followed by experimental designs cohort control studies and so on down to personal communications and so on at, uh, at the bottom and the idea is that you that if you you look for the best evidence you look to get evidence as far up the tree as you possibly can, uh, and if you can't find it, then you go f you go further down. There's no suggestion that this the, the things further down any longer 
not to suggest in any order that things further down don't give you some sort of evidence, but they don't give you as good evidence as, as the stuff uh, further up. Okay, well, this is one, one uh, evidence hierarchy, but there are lots of many. There are lots of others. Um, 2002 study found 40 different hierarchies, uh, and a 2006 study added 20 more. They all agree on some things, namely that RCT remains king, and they all, as far as I can tell, have this view that uh, one so-called well-performed randomized controlled trial trumps any number of observational studies or historically controlled studies, even if the, the massive numbers are involved in the historical controlled studies, and even if you've got very good reason to think that you've done a good job of controlling in those uh, historical controlled studies for alternative explanations. Still, one reasonable RCT is supposed to trump all that, and there's no account in any of these about how, how you might do an overall evaluation. I mean, this seems to me not a very good approach here to say you, you look at the top, but if you find something there, you don't look anywhere else in the, in the hierarchy. You want to take an overall view of the, uh, of the evidence if you're going to admit that these things do form some sort of evidence further down. But the, so they agree on some things, but there are also differences. Uh, some put meta-analyses top, uh, another whole lecture on the dark art of meta-analysis, uh, which I won't talk about today, but, but there are real difficulties there in putting together different uh, trials. So meta-analysis means that you put together uh, different trials on the same, for the same treat of the same treatment, and come up with what I think is usually a very bogus uh, precise number, that's why I think people nowadays more tending more towards systematic reviews and meta-analysis. But uh, others don't mention them at all. Uh, some people, some of the uh, hierarchies on the, uh, that are available uh, put cohort control studies ahead of case control studies. Others put that in reverse. Also, uh, there's been an explicit concession by Glasser et al. Glasser is now the main evidence-based medicine person, probably, that RCTs are not needed for so-called dramatic effects. Um, with, and they make some effort, though I don't think it's entirely successful to say what a dramatic effect is. Um, there's been a fleeting recognition in parts of the literature that it seems odd to hold that the most clearly efficacious treatments don't have best evidence. So you've got all these treatments that are giving you 1% absolute risk reduction or something uh, based on 20,000 patient clinical trials for some drug treatment. Uh, on the one hand, and that's basically why so many people take statins. Um, I know, but on the other, things like appendicectomy for uh, acute appendicitis can't ever have top-rate evidence because we're never going to do a randomised controlled trial on it yet. I think anybody would agree that uh, appendicectomy for acute appendicitis is a, is a better established treatment than a lot of the drugs that provide at best small amounts of risk reduction that have been given fairly rigorous randomised controlled trial evidence. And it's odd that various unfortunate a priori judgments are, are endorsed. So, for example, it's telling you that you'll, because of the fact that you can't double-blind uh, experiments on um, exercise for depression, for example, because people know when they're doing exercise, uh, you're never going to have uh, anything, you're never going to be able to have as good evidence for the effectiveness of, uh, of, of uh, exercise for uh, depression as you would have for, for a drug because with a drug you can do it as a randomised you can do a proper randomised double blind controlled trial. You don't want those sorts of a priori judgments being endorsed it seems to me. Also also there's been a swing in the frequentist Bayesian balance amongst 
statisticians, too complicated to go into here, but it just that there are two styles of doing statistics, the Fisherian standard way and the, the Bayesian way, which was even a few decades ago regarded as, as rather esoteric and not to be taken terribly important. Nowadays, people tend to be much more open to Bayesian influence. Of course, Bayesians have always said that there's no role for randomization, except for a little bit that I'll talk about in a, in a second. But basically, no role for randomization in the way that the frequentists are committed to. And finally, uh, there's been one very influential voice, uh, namely the voice of this man, uh, Sir Michael Rawlings, who's the head of the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. So I guess certainly one of the most influential uh, people in medicine these, in, in the UK these days. And he wrote, I think, a very good uh, <coughs> Alvean oration for the Royal College of Physicians, uh, where he uh, issues a whole series of warning notes about evidence-based medicine going too far. He's certainly pro-evidence in the general sense, that I indicated right at the beginning, any sensible person surely ought to be. But he's scathing about what Jennifer, my wife, and no doubt others, calls anorak EBM. Uh, claiming in particular that evidence hierarchies are internally justified since they, unjustified since they overrate RCT. So here's a quote from Rawlings. The notion that evidence can be reliably placed in hierarchies is illusory. Hierarchies place RCTs on an undeserved pedestal. For although the technique has advantages, it also has significant disadvantages. Observational studies, in particular historically controlled trials, where the control is provided by previous patients given the previously accepted treatment, uh, two have defects, but they also have merit. Indeed, he thinks the whole idea of a hierarchy is a mistake. Hierarchies attempt to replace judgment with an oversimplistic, pseudo-quantitative assessment of the quality of the available evidence. In fact, decision makers in medicine have to incorporate judgments as part of their appraisal of the evidence in reaching their conclusions. You can't just take it that because it's a randomized control trial, it must be telling you the truth. Well, this is, as people say, uh, deja vu all over again, uh, or Groundhog Day, because the whole, um, the whole rationale for evidence-based medicine was to do away with the need for uh, judgment and to make it all, quote, clean and scientific, and yet, uh, according to uh, Rawlings, that uh, can't actually be done. The fact that the situation is, is in flux, then, for all these reasons, so we've had you know, Glassier et al. saying that you don't need randomised control trials for larger for dramatic effects, rawlings and so on. The fact that, uh, that the whole situation is, is in something of a flux uh, means that when I give talks like this to uh, evident to medicine, medical uh, audiences, I'm sometimes accused of being one of these, uh, a snake oil salesman, because I'm defending a non-scientific approach to evidence. Unfortunately, I do look ever more like this particular <laughs> snake oil salesman. But that's, that's by the by. Um, you're supposed to say that. No, John. No, no, not really. Uh, uh, and then after that, the other uh, part of the time, I get accused of attacking a straw man because nobody believes that randomised controlled trials are as good as uh, is sometimes said, and sometimes both at the same time. Although usually, admittedly, different elements of the audience. Maybe we'll get that exemplified again. Well, it seems to me that the evidence-based medicine has got itself in a bit of a mess, at least, and uh, that it's not any longer clear with these different evidence hierarchies, different views about the evidence hierarchy, what we ought to be thinking about evidence in medicine, even though you know, nobody could be more on the side of evidence-based medicine in this general sense that we've got to base it on the best scientifically justified evidence that we possibly can. And it seems to me what we need to do, that's what I'm going to argue in this lecture, really, that we need to 
uh, get out of the mess by going back to a principal position, uh, starting from a more fundamental perspective, which surprisingly uh, is the perspective supplied by philosophy of science. Surprisingly, because philosophy of science doesn't do agreement very well, it doesn't do settling of controversies, it seems to create controversies uh, all the time. Uh, but in fact, it does seem to me that, that the, the only insight is really only educated scientific common sense. I think the unique from philosophy of science is, in fact, common to all the approaches that there are, that are at least all the approaches that are sensible uh, to the logic of evidence. I mean, philosophy, so confirmation theory or the logic of evidence has always been a central part of philosophy of science, the central part, I would say. And as I said, there have been many, many diff diff differences over details. So Popper and the Bayesians have very different views. Uh, for example, uh, John Stuart Mill has a very different view than, than the Bayesians. But they all agree, I think, that on this one fundamental principle, that real evidence for a theory is not only evidence that accords with the theory, that in the most clear-cut case the theory predicts, but also is unlikely otherwise. That is, is it's actually inconsistent with lots of rival theories that are made plausible by background knowledge. So in particular, the evidence is stronger than more plausible uh, alternatives that it, <coughs> rules, it rules out. That's the basics, uh, basic idea of Popper's notion of a severe test. Uh, it's also, as I'll mention in a second, uh, endorsed by Bayes, it's endorsed by John Stuart Mill, it's endorsed in Deborah Mayo's aristotelical approach that's got some attention recently. They all basically agree that support depends on the probability of evidence that you're talking about as confirming T given background knowledge, given it, it, the easiest way to think of it, given anything else that's a plausible explanation for, uh, for the e evidential outcome aside from the one provided by, by T. So Popper, as I say, has this notion of a severe test. The base factor that measures the impact of a piece of evidence uh, on, uh, on a theory uh, it, it is, a, is a function of the probability of H given, uh, the probability of the evidence given H and B. So if H actually entails the evidence, then that will be one. Uh, but an inverse function of the probability of, of, of E given B, the smaller the probability of E given B, the less likely the evidence is uh, on the background. Uh, and the background makes up various alternative explanations for H is apparent success with E plausible, the less likely it is on, on, on the background, then the more impact the evidence has on the hypothesis. Well, that clearly, if you think about it for a minute, underwrites the whole idea of a controlled trial um, and highlights the need for plausible alternatives. So if we take the hackneyed example that people always use, vitamin C, does vitamin C, uh, is it an effective treatment for colds? If you just gave uh, vitamin C to a, a, a bunch of people and see whether they get better from their cold or not, that would be, and they, let's say they all did get better within a week, that would obviously be no evidence whatsoever for the effectiveness of efficacy of vitamin C for colds. <coughs> why not? Well, because there's a perfectly plausible alternative explanation, namely that they would have got better anyway. So that's why you need to, you need to have a control. That is, you have to have two bunches of people one, one, uh, one bunch of people get the vitamin C, the other, the other bunch of people don't get the vitamin C. Let's assume that they've all got the same colds of the same severity at the time or the same range of severities in the, in, in the two groups. Even if you've done that, though, so now, now you've, now you've uh, 
done the trial with, with a control group, that's obviously not in enough in itself. Let's assume that, in fact, significantly many people, more people do get better in the vitamin C group than, than get in, in, the, in, the, in the other treatment arm. Uh, that, that wouldn't be any evidence, although notice uh, already if, when you think about it, effect size is very much more important than a lot of people in evidence-based medicine take. If, if it turned out that all the people got better given vitamin C and almost none of the people who didn't give vitamin C, then you'd at least think that that was some evidence. But assuming that that's, it's not a very big effect, then you'd say, well, that's no good yet because maybe there are differences between the two groups, between the control group and the experimental group that can, that can equally well explain it aside from the uh, proposed efficacy of, of vitamin C. We want to make sure that the ages are roughly, uh, the age distributions are roughly the same in the two groups, that the sex distributions are roughly the same in the two groups, that, that, as I mentioned already, that the degree of severity distribution of the cold is roughly the same in, in the two groups. It's only when you've controlled, that is, made the two groups similar in all respects that you can think of that you'd start to believe uh, that if in fact there is a difference in the control in the experimental group and the control group in terms of uh, how quickly you get rid of the cold that there might that that's some evidence for the efficacy of, of vitamin C and then even then you'd say well maybe it depends what happens in the control group the control group getting nothing the, the natural history group in the jargon of, uh, that's now usually used uh, that wouldn't be any good because maybe vitamin C is a placebo. Maybe it's just giving the, the treatment that uh, giving people a treatment rather than the fact that it contains vitamin C that's what's that's causing the increased uh, number of, of, of uh, ameliorations in the in, in the experimental group. So that's why you uh, introduce a dummy pill to placebo control it to control for another possible explanation, namely that it's the effect of expectations. Uh, rather than the effect of the vitamin C. Okay. So that, that's the, the whole idea of a, of a control, controlled experiment and the importance thereof is dictated by this simple principle from philosophy of science or educated common sense, whatever you want to, whatever you want to say. Well, obviously by deliberate matching, that is making, making the group similar in all respects that might uh, mean that there was an alternative explanation for the positive outcome. You could do that, uh, at least in principle, it's going to be very difficult in practice, uh, but you could do it at least in principle for all alternatives that background knowledge suggests are plausible. So if it's plausible that uh, degree of comorbidity, you know, what other things you've got wrong with you apart from having the cold is a, a, a factor in, uh, in how quickly you recover from a cold, whatever you're given, then you want to make sure that, the, that the, you deliberately match for comorbidity and so on in the, t in the, in the two arms. What you, but two issues seem inevitable. First of all, who says what background knowledge is and what possible confounders it makes plausible. Although, l let me skip that for the time being. I don't think it's right to think that you, you can ever avoid judgment, even in <coughs> physics, but let's not worry about that. And whatever... Even aside from that, everybody agrees that B is at least very likely to be incomplete. So when you think about it from this perspective, you immediately see, as everybody in the field has seen, of course, uh, that you get into Donald Rumsfeld's problem of the uh, unknown unknowns. Uh, what, whatever you do to deliberately match the two groups in terms of alternative, the alternative explanations that are made plausible by background knowledge, 
even if we could agree on what background knowledge is, there's still be the possibility that there's something that background knowledge doesn't tell us about, after all we make breakthroughs in science and in medicine, uh, that, we, that we haven't taken into account. So wouldn't it be nice if we could circumvent that problem? Uh, and that's exactly the, the, the thought that it would be very nice if we could circumvent it is, of course, the motivation behind the randomised controlled trial. If you randomise, and only if you randomise, then you're guaranteed, and don't all shout straw man yet, we'll come back to it in a minute, uh, to have two groups that are, that are equal, not only in respect to known confounders, that is, known alternative explanations for, the, for any positive result that you observe in a trial, uh, but for unknown ones as well. And it's, you won't need to look very far in the EBM literature to see claims that this is exactly what you do get in, a, uh, in an evidence, in a randomised controlled trial. So Mike Clark, who's the head of the UK Cochrane Collaboration, says in a randomised trial the only difference between the two groups being compared is that of most interest, the intervention under investigation. I should say there's a footnote later on that says this isn't true, but we'll come on, as I say, we'll come on to that. Rawlings, despite being, um, despite being, uh, as we've seen, uh, very uh, wary about over-inflating claims on, on behalf of the randomised control trial, does say the greatest strength of the RCT is that the allocation of the treatments is random, so that the groups being compared are similar for baseline factors. And the, the source of all 100% accurate information, Wikipedia, also says, as their name suggests, that randomised controlled trials involve the random allocation of different interventions, treatments or conditions to subjects. As long as numbers of subjects are sufficient, this ensures that both known and unknown confounding factors are evenly distributed between treatment groups. Well, there's all sorts of stuff you could say here. They're, they're, they're certainly not, as Mike Clark says, identical, just trivially, the two groups, because one's got Mrs. Smith in it and not Mr. Brown, and the other's got Mr. Brown in it and not Mr. Smith. Uh, and what you really mean is similarity, and similarity with respect to which, and that, it's not even clear to me that you can give a fully-fledged, coherent account of what, of what the similarity is that's, in, uh, that's at issue here. But in any case, the otherwise equivalent claim is quite obviously false, uh, at least it's false in, uh, in it, that you can ensure that, it's, that, it, it's, that it, it exists in any single randomised division of the patients in your experiment into, uh, random, into experimental control groups. This is actually quietly conceded. If you read a, 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 a book on how to perform randomised control trials, it will generally uh, the better ones will tell you that you should check once you have randomised the so-called baseline imbalances in known confounders. That is, you randomise and then you look and check and see if you've got too many women in one group, too many men in the other, or too many old people in one group and, and not in the other. If you've got too many people with comorbidities in one group and not, not in the other, then you should re-randomise until you're happy with those. Uh, you're happy with the distribution. Well, if, if it's possible on a single randomised division, to produce baseline imbalances, as patently it is, and you're being told that this will happen, it, that, means, that means imbalances in known confounders. It's always possible that there are imbalances in unknown confounders. It's just the only difference is that you won't know that there are imbalances in unknown confounders because they're unknown. Well, I have an amusing example that I always give of this. Um, an article by Leibovici and collaborators called 
The effects of remote retroactive intercessory prayer on outcomes in patients with bloodstream infection, randomized controlled trial, published in a perfectly respectable journal, British Medical Journal, 2001. This is a massive trial by randomized control standards, by, by normal standards. There are 3,393 patients involved in it, all of whom had had a bloodstream infection while being an inpatient at the Rabin Medical Center during the years 1990 to 96, Rabin Medical Center in Israel. In July 2000, so notice between four and ten years later, a random number generator was used to divide these patients into two groups, and which of these two became the treatment group was decided by coin toss. So this is real hot randomised. That's twice. <laughs> twice they were randomised. Law of large numbers kicked in, as, it, as far as I'm concerned, it mysteriously often does, though I can't for the life of me work out why. But uh, law of large numbers did kick in pretty well. There were 16, so it was pretty even just, uh, numbers in the two groups. 1691 were randomised to the intervention group, 1702 to the control group. At this point, oh sorry, they, the, in line with good randomised control trial terminal uh, protocols, um, there was a check made for baseline imbalances with regard to the main known risk factors for death and severity of illness, and none were found, so no need to redo the randomisation. At that point, and only at that point, the names of those in the intervention group were given to a person who said, who quote, said a short prayer, it's a denominational, I'm glad to say, uh, for, the, for the well-being and full recovery of the group as a whole, that group, the ones whose name he was holding on a list, the, the experimental group. And the results were that both length of stay in hospital and duration of fever were significantly shorter in the intervention group, uh, with the magic p-values both being less than 0.05. Indeed, uh, uh, as far as length of stay in hospital went, um, it was significant at the 99% level. And the conclusion that Leibovitchi and uh, collaborators drew was that remote re retroactive intercessory prayer set for a group, remote because it's geographically away from the Rabin Centre, uh, retroactive because it was between four and ten years later. Intercessory prayer said for a group is associated with a shorter stay in hospital and shorter duration of fever in patients with bloodstream infection and should be considered for use in clinical practice. Uh, it was actually somewhat tongue-in-cheek because it, he, he points out that no patients were lost to follow up on. They wouldn't be. Um, but, um, but despite that, amazingly, uh, on the uh, British Medical Journal uh, discussion site, there was an amazing amount of discussion. It really did turn out that some people were willing to believe that God moved in as mysterious ways as this would make, him, uh, make, it, uh, make it seem. But of course, all, the rest of us can't. Anybody says we're not going to believe that. Right? So obviously what happened in this case, which trivially can happen, is that there were some imbalances in the unknown confounders that made the difference between, uh, be between, the, between the two groups, just as before, because they're unknown. We can't, uh, we can't identify them. <coughs> the natural reaction which Leibovitch himself articulated in an attempt to stop this discussion on the BFJ website, well, it shows that we're all Bayesian, that is, that you, can't, that you must bring prior beliefs, pr and provided those prior beliefs have some justification, that's exactly the right thing to do, uh, to, to the interpretation of any statistical experiment. So he says, if the pre-trial probability so the pre-trial probability of remote retroactive intercessory prayer being effective is so small that if it's that low, then the results of the trial will not really change it and the trial should not be performed. 
This, to my mind, turns the article into a non-study, though the details provided, randomization done only once, statement of a prayer, analysis, etc., are, are all correct. I do think that Fisher made a, a, a natural but egregious mistake. He believed that in, in order to be objective, in order to be scientific, you couldn't bring in any prior information in the interpretation. You had to just look and see whether the null hypothesis was refuted or not, at whatever significance level you decided. Uh, but that must be mistaken. And in fact, sensible Fisherians incorporate. There's less of a difference between Bayesians and Fisherians when it comes down to actual practice, because the, the prize are sort of brought in, in in the way that you model the situation. Obviously, you've got to... You know, that's why nobody takes any notice. If somebody does a uh, randomised controlled trial on homeopathy and gets a positive result, anybody sensible says, no, you're going to do that occasionally, uh, just by chance, for example, uh, because we, all know, we, we just know, we have very good evidence, it's not a subjective opinion, that the sorts of mechanisms that homeopaths postulate can't possibly be real. Okay, so this was a kosher trial, proper randomization, double randomization, no data mining, baseline imbalances were checked for, but as I said, we all know that there must in fact have been uh, an imbalance in unknown factors, unknown confounders, uh, and that's perfectly possible. So, okay, now you can shout straw man, because nobody believes, really, although they say it, and they keep on saying it, uh, that randomization controls for all possible confounders in some <coughs> surefire guarantee sense. Rather, uh, it's some sort of probabilistic guarantee that's being suggested here. Uh, but what I've tried to do, I, I'm not going to time obviously to go into the details of the argument, what I've done in a couple of recent articles is try and see what that probabilistic guarantee really amounts to. And it's very difficult to, to see what coherent sense it really, it, it really makes. A large, surprisingly large number of people are given surprisingly large amounts of solace by saying that basically what you say is that either the groups are equivalent if you randomised or a chance event has occurred. But a chance event always occurs, in this, at least in the way that you're modelling this. I mean, this is like saying that it's a chance event if you get ten tosses of a coin coming up heads and not a chance event if you get between, say, four and six. They're both chance events. Uh, I don't know what that means. And, well, let's see what I was going to say. Okay. And again, I think the philosophy of science can uh, clarify by looking at this, uh, at this notion uh, of a probabilistic guarantee. I think what's going on is there's a slip from what's true in the indefinite long run of many repeated random divisions, because that's really the only sense that you can make of probabilities in an objective way. Uh, is, a, is a, the frequency interpretation of the, the uh, uh, value to which the relative frequency uh, converges, if it does converge uh, as uh, the number of trials is, is, is increased. Importing what would be true in the indefinite long run to what's true in the single random division, and you only ever do the trial uh, once. There is, there are, uh, there is serious doubt in the philosophical, philosophical science literature whether you can really make sense of single case prob probabilities. I don't think you can on any objective interpretation. You can on the Bayesian interpretation of probabilities as degrees of belief, but not certainly on the only objective set account that I think makes sense, namely the, the frequencies one that I just mentioned. There's also a hint of a quantified conf confusion in that argument, but let's not worry about that. 
Okay, so what, we, what should we do here? I'm, notice at the end, anybody getting hot under the collar, this is not going to be against randomised control trials in the end. We'll come back and say that sometimes randomising does do something. What I'm, well, I'll say what I'm going to say when I get there. Uh, so RCTs can't control for all possible confounders. Nothing can. Let's be clear that's the situation. The question to ask is whether or not there's a plausible alternative explanation of an apparently positive <coughs> trial result. The answer may be no, even without randomization. And this is really why, I, why I've been motivated to, to look in detail at, at, at uh, the, the arguments of randomization, because it does seem to me that there are, in the history of recent medicine, cases, ECMO for uh, pulmonary hypertension of the newborn is one, where the obsession with doing randomized controlled trials has led people to downgrade already telling historically controlled trial evidence that really should have told people not to do the trials. And I think those trials, the randomized controlled trials are very ethically questionable because they rely on the assumption that you don't really know anything, you're in equipoise, because you don't know anything until you've done a randomized controlled trial, and that's just not true. The answer may be no, even without randomization. Remember, even Glassier and people have admitted this is true for large effects, and boy, was the effect a large effect, turned 80% mortality from that. Uh, affliction to 80% uh, survival. Uh, so the answer may be no without randomization, although it's certainly true, and this is the one sense in which I can see that randomization is unambiguously a good idea. If you're looking at something with a small effect, if you're looking at a, a, a trial that produces a significant but rather small positive outcome uh, in the sense of a better uh, outcome in the experimental group than in the, than in the control group, it's always possible that that's created by selection bias, not in selection bias is a, one of the terms that's used in very many different ways in, in, in medicine, I mean by selection bias something very specific, namely the possible effect of conscious selections made by the clinicians. If the clinician has control over which arm uh, any individual patient goes into, then there's a possibility that, in fact, the possibility both ways, either that they, um, that they maybe subconsciously, or if they're looking for further funding, maybe consciously, uh, select the relatively stronger patients to go into the, into the experimental arm, or the weaker patients to go into the comparator arm. Or they may, as uh, Austin Bradford Hill pointed out, actually bend over backwards to be fair and put the weaker people in the experimental, experimental group to make it appear in severe test, although he doesn't use this phrase, but that's his, that's his idea. E certainly either way, uh, selection bias can be a, a problem, and obviously, not from any magic of randomization, but just from the fact that the way that a randomized controlled trial is normally done, you take the control of, the, of which arm a particular patient goes into out of the hands of the clinician when you randomize. That's obviously something that, that, that's, a, that's a, an advantage that randomization can have, uh, and that, that can't be uh, that can't be matched by historical controlled trials. But I say again, it's only for small effects because uh, it is eliminated by randomisation. So, despite everything I said, randomisation certainly may do some good, but it's a big mistake to make a fetish of it. I think well-controlled historically controlled trials may be just as telling certainly if they're large, uh, and by well-controlled I mean where you've really taken the, an effort, made an effort to see that there's no pl 
plausible confounder. That is, there's no nothing in background knowledge that tells you that uh, the two uh, the two arms may be the, the historical arm uh, and uh, and the current treatment arm. Because obviously, in a historical control trial, all the people who are actually being consciously uh, investigated are given the ex the experimental treatment because the controls are provided by uh, by uh, patients from the recent past, preferably obviously who've been given the earlier treatment. Uh, you can't, just as Bayesians have always argued, be in a better epistemic position and having no good reason to think that there's a confounder. It would be nice if the promise of randomised controlled trials really were real and you really did put yourself in a better epistemic position by randomising. I think you do, it's exactly because of selection bias, but only because of that factor which most which everybody agrees is likely to be uh, small at best you can't be in a better position than having no good reason to think that there's a confounder okay I think perhaps I'm better stop there I was going to go on I, I really didn't expect to tell this long uh, and talk about two other ways in which the fossil science can help in this area but maybe I've said enough oh I don't know yeah, maybe I said enough. Really? All right. Just it's, it's really quite quick. The next next bit, but maybe some people want to go. Um, okay. So if you look at typical research reports, th these are just taken from a recent edition of the Lancet. They've got titles like efficacy and safety. Which I don't know how to pronounce this. Ustekinumab in patients with psoriasis, a randomised controlled trial. Active symptom control with or without chemotherapy in the treatment of patients with malignant pleural mesothelioma, a randomised controlled trial. And they report, as I indicated, usually randomised trials on selected group of patients involving a number of exclusion criteria. The elderly standardly are excluded. People with significant comorbidities are excluded from the trial, for example generally using some very precise treatment regimen so it's you know, whatever it is x milligrams of whatever twice a day on the dot of noon and tea time or whatever where, where the treatment's given for some relatively brief period so for example as Rawlings again points out most RCTs even for interventions that are likely to be used by patients for many years are of only 6 to 24 months duration and the result may be that D is more effective, more efficacious, I think they use, than the comparator uh, for condition C. Well, what you've got to ask yourself here is what exact theory has been tested in, and passed this test of being more effective. Well, not that vague, not that vague claim that it's more effective. What does that mean? Uh, but it's rather this, that something like this anyway, that, d that, the, that the drug D, when administered in a very particular way to a very particular set of patients for a particular length of time, is more effective than some comparative treatment, perhaps placebo, which wouldn't be actually very interesting to most physicians anyway, but that's another story. Well, let's say for, this, for the purpose of this argument that RCT provides, let's say, impeccable evidence for that precise claim. But it's not the claim that a practitioner is interested in. What she's interested in, what she wants evidence for, is these effective in a wide sense that includes both short-term and longer-term side effects in particular, when prescribed to the sorts of patients she would like to prescribe it to. Where the target population will include the excluded, it will include uh, old people, and it will include people with comorbidities. Uh, and th these may be very different, obviously. 
where the dosage may be adjusted, the doctor can t keep tabs on how the patient's doing if it's looking like some of the known side effects are coming about, but there's some previous, there's some improvement in the target disorder, then they might re reduce the dose, or if it's not, having, it's not having any bad effects, but it's also not doing very much for the target disorder, they might increase the dose, uh, and so on. For chronic conditions prescribed for a long time, unlike the, the theory that was actually tested, which is what happens when it's used for 6 to 24 months. Uh, now, this problem is usually run in terms of external validity, which everybody... That, that, so ex the external validity of the trial... The external validity means it's, it's randomised. Uh, the external validity is whether it generalises from the uh, trial population to the so-called target population. I think uh, there's very few respects in which I'm a residual papyrian, but this is why it all seems to be better to express problems in deductivist terms rather than inductivist terms, and it seems to be the sensible thing to say is that you've tested the wrong theory. You've tested a theory that you're not particularly interested in, namely this one about the, uh, the effect on a very selected group of people under very precise uh, regimen with precise exclusions and so on. Notice again, this isn't a pure human, purely philosophical issue. We're not worrying about whether we can generalise our experience of sunrises in the past to tomorrow's sunrise. There are very good reasons to think <coughs> that uh, the target population, study populations, more or less across the board in, in medicine, are different. So but, uh, there's a study by Bartlett is now look, looking at RCTs on non-specific uh, uh, Jennifer. Non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, of course I knew that, uh, and statins, uh, and found that older people, women, and ethnic minorities all consistently underrepresented in the, in the studies. Uh, and background knowledge gives us good reason to think that those differences will matter. It's not, these are not idle, it's not this idle you know, philosophical problems I say, will the sun rise tomorrow, can we guarantee that it will on basis of what we did before, can we generalise from previous sunrises to the next one? And indeed, there's a constructive proof of that, that this does sometimes happen. That again was supplied to me by my uh, uh, tame, not very tame actually, supplier of, uh, of, uh, uh, of medical information. Uh, namely, the case of I'm getting too tired to speak. Benoxaprofen, uh, which was uh, marketed under the, under the name Oprin. This was a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. Uh, the, uh, in, in the early 80s for arthritis, arthritis musculoskeletal pain and its big selling point was that unlike all its predecessors it was uh, a once a day drug and since most of the people who are going to be taking this are old biddies who tend to forget to take their medicine this was a very good idea and uh, it was marketed very aggressively so Jennifer tells me and people were physicians were pissed off on the Orient Express and told about how wonderful Opera was, and it cornered the market uh, because there'd been a trial uh, on, pay, on all the subjects of which were between 18 and 65 uh, that gave it a big positive result. And as I say, it cornered the market on the basis of this positive result and a large marketing effort. Well, it's a fact, as everybody knows, that musculoskeletal pain predominantly afflicts the elderly, and the elderly were excluded from this trial. Uh, it turned out that and it turned out that among the elderly treated with opera, there were marked numbers of deaths from hepatorenal 
renal failure, and opera was promptly withdrawn. No one ever suggested that within, trial, that the, that within the subpopulation represented, whatever that means by the original trial group, opera had anything other than a marked positive effect. So this was this issue of testing the wrong. What you've got evidence for is that it's a good thing, in this, given in this particular way, to this particular set of patients, which, have, which are not, however, representative of the patients that you're going to be treating. Okay, so I looked at it in my philosophy of science way. RCT gives strong, even if we had agreed, which may be, may be true when selection bias is a real worry, that RCT gives the strongest evidence for the wrong theory, that is, the theory about this effect in these artificial circumstances, it by no means entails that it gives strongest evidence for the, for the right theory. And again, apart from the, there are, there are strong arguments to this effect, I think, to be found in the medical, philosophical and medical literature. Uh, so uh, a guy called Troger argued this in the case of, of ECMO, uh, largely on the grounds of differential expertise and changing technology. So there you would, you would uh, comparing a, a type of artificial ventilation with this new treatment, extracorporeal membranous oxygenation. And what Trug points out is that actually you get quite different um, results uh, using those two techniques in different centres. And it's a large part of it is to do with whether with the expertise, or the, the local expertise, and also the fact that the, that the technology are constantly being improved. So you're not going to get any sensible result from any sort of study, in particular from a randomised controlled trial, because it will just give you a snapshot, at best, of the current situation in a rather restricted group of cases. It's much better to select people who believe that artificial ventilation is a good thing, do their stuff. Let people who think ECMO is a good thing do their stuff. Look very carefully to see that you've not got systematic differences between the two groups of people and see how things work out. In, in, in the long run. In other words, the it's going to be an observational study that really tells you, that gives you anything interesting here, rather than any snapshot randomised controlled trial. And a, a, a woman called Robin Blooms extended the argument to chronic diseases, basically picking up on what we already saw Rawlins say, um, that you know you, you, you're not, you, you want to take into account with treatments for chronic, chronic diseases, not just short-term side effects, which you may well pick up in a normal randomised controlled trial, but long-term side effects, which you want, because they're always going to be sh sh um, shorter. So probably it's a good idea just to see, okay, we used to give people this treatment, this is how people, things work, now we're, we're giving people this treatment, which looks like it might be better, let's see how things work out in, in, the, in, in the long run, keeping some systematic tabs on, what, um, on what's going on and what, the comparability of the two groups. So uh, this is not a case of no RCT, so go down the hierarchy to the next best. These are arguments that for, if you're looking at, at, the, at what you really want evidence for, as opposed to some theory that you don't really want evidence for, then you're getting better evidence, if anything, from observational studies than, than from randomised controlled trials. There was another thing, but I can't speak any longer. Thank you very much.
not really, no. Um, I was just wondering about the confounders you were talking about. Well, obviously, there's always an issue of whether, you know, the, the second problem is always going to be the issue of whether, uh, whether results generalise from, you know, from the animal case to the human case. And again, it seems to me you're going to have to rely on background knowledge to tell you the sorts of things that do that are likely to generalise and the sorts of things that aren't. Um, you aren't going to get a blanket. Uh, they're always useless. Animal studies are always useless, obviously, they're painted on. Uh, and, but neither are you going to get that they're always a good idea. <coughs> can't get away from them. New knowledge goes on background knowledge. Big insight, also science. Yeah. 
big trial with one level of significance for the null hypothesis. Whereas systematic review, you say you get you get a clever chap who looks at this and says, uh, this looks as if, given this and this, then we put all this together. It looks as if it's a good idea to do to do it. That sounds okay. Yes. What's the uh, EBM on homeopathy? As far as it, how has it survived all the RCT? Despite there not being ungrounded evidence that we need therapeutic value. Well, uh, I'm, I'm currently writing with a PhD, former PhD student, an article on placebo. I, I, it's not as clear to me as it, as it was. I mean, I always start out with this real, you know, scientific, it's all science, but I don't There's a real issue here. I mean, we know that the placebo effect is very important. Very, very important exactly in the areas. That's why these silly Gotch and Abraxan studies is silly, because it looks at tries to get you know, a measurement of placebo control across all sorts of things, but obviously there's no placebo effect of cancer and stuff. It's very minimal, maybe. Uh, but you know, it's for pain, it's for um, irritable bowel syndrome, it's for mild depression. I, I, it does look like there's strong evidence that it's, that it's effective uh, to, a good, to, to some quite good degree. And one thing that's pretty clear not as clear as I hope, but then nothing is, is that you don't get the placebo effect, or at least not to the same degree, if you don't believe, if, if, you, if, if you believe it's a placebo. There are cases where people got a big effect, even though they were told <coughs> that, that, that they were getting a placebo, but interestingly, they didn't believe the clinicians. <laughs> now, if it's true that homeopathy is a placebo. First of all, like, like Homer Simpson said, give me some of those placebos, man. I mean, you know, it's a good, placebo is a good thing to have for something. And if it's true that, that, that even if it's true that, that homeopathy operates by the placebo effect, and I'm absolutely sure it does, it may be a good idea to let people go to homeopaths. And indeed, a good idea, this is where I really get queasy about it, not to tell them, not to, for me to be banging on and, and Simon said to be banging on about how it's all placebo effect because if you convince them that it is, it may make it less effective, and then you're going to get more people bothering their, uh, their, GP, their overworked GP with irritable bowel syndrome and stuff like that. So it's a bit uh, less clear cut than I, than, than, than I started out thinking of in that respect. But I'm absolutely sure you're right. I mean, you know, there's no way that the di you know, if you're talking about dilutions to the extent that there isn't an active uh, molecule in the in, in the water that you're giving them, and all this crazy stuff about water having a memory, you know, that's all bogus, uh, bogus science. So there's no, there can't be any, quote, scientific basis for it, that is, that's where it always gets tricky with the placebo stuff. There can't be any, there can't be any, there can't be any, what people call specific effect of the homeopathic remedies. But that doesn't mean there's no effect, because you add to the specific effect of placebo effect, at least for some conditions. And it does seem that you know, sometimes people do feel better from their irritable bowel or mild depression or whatever it is, purely on the basis of placebo. But only they believe it's a placebo. So I, I'm getting, it's, 
really is Mexico is really the, the, the area we can uh, Soros and Tony Giddens but, and on endlessly about reflexivity that is the effect of the effect of an investigator say, making predictions about, an, about the system on the basis on that system itself you tell an electron what, what, what it's going to do in a, in a military experiment it won't take a blind bit of notice. I'm sorry, you can talk to it all day. Or Prince Charles can talk to it all day. The electron will do what it wants, right? But there are, you know, the usual example is if an eminent economist gets up and predicts that there'll be a stock market crash. It's very likely there will be. Who believe in economists? I don't know. But this is usually the example, anyway. Uh, but it does seem that medicine is, you know, the, the first point on the hard to soft science spectrum a sort of middle point, a sort of medium part of point where reflexivity really comes in with a bang. That is, you know, what you say may actually change the system. That you're, what you say about the system may actually change the system. And I'm only just starting to think about how that pans out in that in that area. But it's a good question. Thank you. Or somewhere else. Yeah. Um, following what you've been saying about placebos, it might be <coughs> at least plausible to connect placebos with hypnosis. So I'm wondering, do, could, could there be a, a credible case for replacing placebos with hypnosis? Well, some people, some people differentiate between uh, conditioning and expectancy, expectancies in this area. I'm not clear on exactly on, on the ground. Certainly, I don't know what I have to think about it. But what's certainly true, and one of the things I've been thinking about again, is that you don't want to think that the placebo effect is only got from placebos. Uh, because, I mean, the, in fact, the, the most striking evidence, I think, is by this guy Benedetti, although how he gets his ethical permission, I don't know. Uh, but of the placebo effect of genuine uh, analgesia. So he studies the different, it's called the open, hidden protocol. So you, you give everybody the same stuff, and you tell half of them that they're getting a very high-powered analgesic, and you tell half of them that they're, that they're, that they're not. But they are. And the group has much better uh, results. The group, the group that's told that they're getting the, uh, the analgesia. Uh, gets more pain relief than it doesn't. Well, there's no placebo around there. There's not, not in the sense of a dummy pill. But it's surely you'd want to say it's part of the placebo effect. So, I, I, and how you, you know, on the other hand, I think, like all terms in science, certainly <coughs> mushy science like medicine, that, that, that these terms can, you know, there's a certain amount of conventionality where you draw the line or not, depending on how much. Well, as, as, as science progresses, the term sort of modifies itself a little bit. So whether, for example, you'd want to say if, and I saw this in the country, the party recently told me, oh, these people, they think you can have, uh, you can have placebo effects in dogs. Uh, but I said, I think dogs can be uh, trained by association to, to expect pain relief from, a, from an, uh, an injection, for example. Well, they give lots of injections which have genuine uh, opiates in it or whatever uh, and then they're, they're given the same amount of pain uh, and injected with saline or whatever and they get relief oh that's not, that's, that's not a placebo effect that's conditioning 
Well, I don't know. You know, so whether, whether that's right, I don't know. Whether you want to draw a line between between an effect that's, gen that's a part of a conscious expectation, which we take it that presumably adults can't consciously expect to to get pain relief. I don't know. Some people, I'm sure Prince Charles will dispute that. Um, Extend it to plants as well, but presumably I don't know. I don't know. <coughs> Dog owners will disagree, but let's just assume that they that they don't. But whether you want to say that it's not the placebo effect because of that, I mean, you're still giving a placebo when you give the saline injection, and they are still getting you're still getting what you would incline to say is the placebo, uh, namely the saline injection, and you're getting a response. That's, that's I suppose not from all you've been saying that. You, you, you can't answer whether hypnosis has any role or not. No, I think it, I mean, it does, doesn't it? I mean, people learn to give up smoking cigarettes on hypnosis. I think that's probably. It's just whether, you know, or aversion therapies, or whether these count. I'm just saying it's not clear. I mean, I'm sure that you know, they all have roles in. Uh, I just have to look at the evidence. But I, I, I was just relating it back to the discussion about placebos. It's, I think that's where the notion of placebo becomes a little bit vague and fussy. Blue, you wanted to ask him. Yeah, I was wondering, so, so the RCTs are the gold standard, right? That's what they say. But now, I mean, suppose you say to somebody who believes that, now, you know, you have a case where background knowledge tells you that gender has something to do with whether this works or not, right? Would they then admit to the fact that, oh, if we do an RCT, we you also make sure that we have the same group of men in both groups, same group of yeah. women in both groups, that that's even better. Or would they say, no, 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 don't touch that, don't touch that, don't go there, do a straightforward RCT. I mean, no, no, I think they certainly, I don't know, I mean, they, they, they usually, usually, nine out of ten cat owners, I don't know, usually, most of the books I've looked at on anatomy randomized control trials allow for looking for baseline imbalances. And 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 they that, and that means balances in uh, sex difference. I still regard gender as a grammatical term. But anyway, uh, that may be my fault. Uh, the uh, and differences in age distribution and so on. And and then rather quickly, you might think they rather than what they recommend is that you don't deliberately match with respect to those things that you that you've that you're worried about. So you don't this time make sure that there are as many men as women in the, in the two, uh, the distribution of male, male and female is the same in the two groups. You re-randomise until you until you're happy. Now that that struck me as daft initially, but then I, I think, and I'm more sympathetic again, getting older. I think I think it's really a a, 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 a practical thing. It's all very well for philosophers banging on about. You know, epistemic rights and wrongs, but you've actually got to perform the trial, and it, people don't come in matched. Uh, you know, and it's quite a hard work to do the matching. Whereas, you know, it's not very hard to toss the coin or, more accurately, look at the random number table and do it again if you have to until until you've got no reason to think that there's a, 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 a an imbalance in respect of a known confounder, which of course doesn't mean known confounder; it means possible known factor that might possibly have an effect. Uh, I mean, you, you wouldn't want to. I mean, even if you, even if it in fact turned out that there was no age effect uh, for some non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, you would still want to make sure that, that the two groups were equal in terms of the age distribution on this evidential principle. It's not actual. It's not 
That's why I think it's wrong to talk about non-confounders. I'd say it's non-possible confounders, the sort of things that you want, the sort of alternative explanations you want to eliminate before you're confident that some positive result in the trial is indeed a positive result for the for the treatment. Yeah. Being, being, you mean, so this is the old problem about statistical significance is one thing and clinical significance is another. Yeah, yeah I've got every thought about it. You want to make sure that it's uh, clinically significant, otherwise, uh, statistical significance on its own is neither here nor there. And indeed, I've written a paper on which it looks to me, I mean, I haven't stu don't claim to study it in great detail, but it's not clear to me that the effect of statins is established as being clinically significant. It looks to me like, even on the best interpretation of the evidence, it's something like 1.7% absolute risk reduction. And no real studies about what the long-term side effects are. Um, it's really uh, important that that, 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 that And that's why, again, Jennifer and I talk about this endlessly, how the uh, uh, Pharmaceutical companies get uh, get away with uh, doing so many placebo-controlled trials, and indeed the FDA insists. Although I understand they're now moving to a comparative uh, methodology, but still somehow leaving this on the books. That you, that to get licensing, initially you've got to, you've got to, a treatment's got to pass two randomised controlled trials against placebo. The argument being that. Uh, we don't know there's no point doing a trial against a well it's not good enough to do a trial against the presently accepted treatment as your control arm because the presently accepted treatment might be placebo but if, uh, this just seems crazy to me if it outperforms even if the other thing is placebo if, it if, the, if the new if the experimental drug outperforms it then that's just as good as if, you, if it's better a better test from a period point of view if you've done it against something that people believe. And of course it's no significant, people tell me all the time, they don't want to know whether something's better than placebo. They're perfectly convinced that they've got you know, analgesics that work to some degree. They want to know whether this new treatment, this new drug is actually better than what they've got at present. That's the practically significant question. But of course the drug companies want that, they want the slice of the action. Um, they want to get something, They all what they want to test is whether it's better than placebo when they can market it. So yeah, I think a whole lot of, of, of uh, greater concentration <coughs> on, on what's important from the point of view of treatment, both from the point of view of external validity, testing the wrong theory, things I mentioned, and from what you're saying, yeah, absolutely, it needs to be not, not get carried away by the p values. Dean? Um, yeah, so you said um, that uh, randomization is most important in the cases where you think selection bias is going to have a stronger effect on the outcome. Well, I mm -hmm. suppose it's particularly cases where this, the treatment effect is going to be small, and it says expect selection to be a significant uh, factor. But how big typically is the selection effect? <coughs> well, it depends on what, you know, obviously, it's going to depend on particular circumstances. Uh, I mean, this is not something that's no <coughs> I mean, Pito and Dole are not real evidence-based medicine and randomised controlled trial people. I have this uh, article on, a couple of articles 
actually, uh, arguing exactly this, that, that and they're not clear exactly what, and neither are the people who say that we don't need RCTs for dramatic effects are entirely clear, and that probably you don't want to be entirely clear, because it's another argument, another area where judgment's got to, uh, got, got to come in. Uh, but you can, I think, make some sort of estimate of, if you're thinking about you know, selection effect, selection bias in a uh, in a uh, historical control trial, then what you've got to ask yourself is, is the effect that I'm seeing, this apparent improvement with the new treatment compared to the earlier one, is that, is that explicable? Is the extent of it made plausibly explained by uh, any difference in the two groups produced by selection bias? So in this ethanol case that I mentioned, for example, uh, yeah, I had some correspondence with an, another bar, that, not the one I quoted today, uh, who did this, uh, who, who did the ECMO stuff, and he said, well, there was no selection bias, in the sense that they, what, the, the babies that they were, that, who had persistent pulmonary hypertension and newborn who, who, who came in two months ago were treated by conventional treatment, this artificial ventilation. The, people, the kids who came in from exactly the same catchment area. Uh, no big change in demographic, demographics. We're all treated with with the, with the new treatment, and they get a diff they get a, a difference between 80% mortality under the old treatment and 80% survival under the new treatment. Well, you know, you don't need to have been ultra precise to say, well, our selection bias is 10% or something. It's not plausible.